I'm going to begin in verse 8 and read through verse 11 of chapter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to this time to be in your word. We thank you that you have given us the word, you've breathed it out, and you superintended through the work of your spirit, the writing of it down and the transmission of it so that we have it to turn to. In this time, we pray for your Holy Spirit's ministry again, that ministry of illumination, that we would understand more fully everything that you've taken the time to say. Make it clear to us. Speak in the way we need to hear you. And we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been several weeks since we've been in our First Peter study. Three weeks, in fact in which we were looking at different issues intersecting the Advent season, looking at the Incarnation, uh, looking at the birth of Christ, as Galatians talked to us about it last week, looking at Micah uh, chapter 5 and talking about Bethlehem and its place in the unfolding biblical history. So I just very briefly want to say chapter 5 of 1 Peter began in verses 1 to 4 by talking to us about leadership in the local church. And we discovered that God wants leadership to operate very distinctively in the local church context. He does not want it reflective of the way the world goes about seeking to provide leadership. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus made it very plain to his disciples the way that the world leaders were operating. He says, may it not be so with you. Uh, I have a suspicion uh, that that admonition needs repeated frequently in the current day and age where the way the world tends to operate is the way the churches tend to operate, too. I'm not naming any specific one. I'm just giving a general comment on my experiences. Uh, And so we learned a lot of countercultural leadership techniques and directions and principles in those verses. Uh, In verses 5 to 7, we moved away from the issue of leadership in the local church and looked at some challenges to to the sheep making up the flock of that local church. We saw that they were commanded to be subject to the leadership of the church, to be supportive of that leadership, praying for it, and choosing to be adapting themselves to it. Uh, We saw that they were to make also the choice to be clothing themselves with humility. That's to be the primary dress code for any church. Humility, not the the outward appearance of things, but humility, uh, the Greek word to penos, which means lowliness of mind, uh, the idea of a servant mentality. Uh, some of the uh, Greek scholars say it's the idea of putting on the apron. And he says, this is how I want people to be. I want a church filled with people putting on the apron. Better everybody's got the apron on and then wondering who to serve than one or two having the apron on and there's a bunch of people waiting to be served. All right? It's better to have that problem. And that's what he says, this is the way a church is supposed to be. And he finished that by reminding us that God will always oppose the proud. Not just 
the unbelieving proud, but even the believing proud, God will always oppose them. And so our choice is, do we want God for us or do we want him against us in the day-to-day walk of our lives? Finally, we ended by looking at casting all of our anxieties on him. Uh, those things, anxiety, marimna in the Greek, which distract our minds, distort us, divide our minds. And he says, listen, I want you to cast those kind of things on me. And we looked at that word cast, which means to throw as far as you possibly can. I was giving you the example of throwing the javelin with that. You put every effort into putting it out as far away from you as you can get it. That's the prayer that makes a difference. It's the prayer that doesn't get thrown like that. We voice the words, but we're still gripping the issue. That's the prayer that doesn't help us too much. And so we need to throw it. uh, But we're only going to do that throwing if we believe we're inadequate ultimately to face the issue. Which is an internal question, isn't it? Do I think I can handle it? Or am I recognizing I can't? And then secondly, do I believe that God actually cares enough about me that he'll do something about it if I put it in his hands? And that's why he says, do these things, cast your anxieties, because he cares about you. Well, today, uh, that was was some sort of record review of some verses here, uh, in time anyway. In verses 8 to 11, the attention in this final chapter of 1 Peter turns to the issue, the reality of spiritual warfare. And the fact that the Christian life is one lived in the very center of spiritual warfare. The Bible never tries to hide that fact. Uh, It makes the warning clear. In fact, if you look at the Bible sort of chronologically, you begin in the book of Genesis, right away, Genesis 3, you encounter the reality of spiritual warfare in the garden. And you know it keeps coming up all the way through to the very last book, the book of Revelation. And you see there the warfare going on until the very end of the book of Revelation, when the victory of the Lamb is finally demonstrated. Point is, God says, hey listen, let's be realistic. (laughs) Let's understand we're going to continue to encounter that Let's put it in the context of 1 Peter. We've spent a lot of time in 1 Peter being reminded that we're sojourners and exiles. We're in a foreign land. We don't really, we're not really part, or he doesn't want us to be part of where we find ourselves. We should always be distinctive from it as, stranger, as sojourners and exiles. Now he ends the book by saying, hey listen, you're a sojourner and exile in a foreign land, and guess what? You're on the front line battlefield in that foreign land. Not only is it a foreign land, you're in a battlefield, front line, there you are. Certainly Ephesians 6, challenge about putting on the armor of God makes more sense if we understand that to be the case. Uh, God wants us to wake up to that reality and to act upon that reality. He says, I want you as my children to live out your life, to carry out your daily walk as a disciple with the realism the sense of propriety, the caution that would be required if in real life you found yourself suddenly waking up and you're right where the battle's being fought in a physical sense. You wake up and all of a sudden guns are going off around you, incoming, everything's happening around you. Then you're going to be wondering, where do I go? We have a number of hot spots around the world. Consider that in your mind. And God says, I want you to wake up to the fact that it's part of my plan for you not to put you in a nice protected place. I put you in a foreign land, first of all. And guess what? I put you right where the battle is in the foreign land. 
Thanks a lot, Lord. You know, that's a, <laughs> but that's his plan. That's how he's worked it out. And he says, I want you to live with the realism that would come with that. Does that describe how you live your life? How acutely aware are you, day by day, that you live on the front lines, that you actually live in a battlefield, that there can be ambushes, there's bullets flying? How aware do you make yourself of that reality? Certainly the point here in 1 Peter is not just to underscore for us that reality, but to remind us, first and foremost, that Satan, the devil, is directly or indirectly the author of the battle. Certainly starting in Genesis 3, and then right on through. He is the author of the battle. To understand the battle, we need to understand the enemy. You design responses based on what you know the enemy is going to be doing. Now, if you don't know what the enemy is doing, then you're at a distinct disadvantage on the front lines as the battles unfold. And so in these verses today, in fact, we're just going to look at verse 8, and I don't know that we'll get through it, I hope. Uh, we learn five things about our enemy, Satan, the real enemy of our souls, in the midst of this battlefield. Because we can't understand how to live in that battlefield unless we know the enemy. So let's sit and see what he has to say. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Step number one, first thing, and the Bible is going to great lengths to remind us about it. Let's remind ourselves that Satan is, in fact, the great enemy in the battlefield. He is our enemy. He desires our defeat. He desires our spiritual destruction. He is the one who's masterminding the enemy and who is planning attacking us at every opportunity. He is the enemy. Now, why do I emphasize that at the beginning? Well, obviously the passage does. But it's easy for us, because we live in this world, to begin to think, well, the real enemy is lack of education for people, or the real enemy is human oppression, if we get trapped into the neo-Marxist confusion, uh, or the real enemy is some nameless evil, you know, and, and if we can just sort of do things that keep people who are essentially good away from that, then everything will work out, or, or maybe the real enemy is ill health and we just need to solve health issues, or maybe the real enemy is social injustice, boy, if we can just correct social injustice, everything will be okay. And God is saying, well, those things are bad things, but the fact of the matter is, the battle doesn't go away no matter what you do about those things. The battle is with the enemy of our souls. He just shifts operational tactics. And it doesn't help you to have created a defense against social injustice if he shifts his gears and corrupts you from within by other things. Uh, well... Our enemy is the devil, a real, not mythical character. And so the beginning of the passage just underscores for us that reality. As biblical Christians, we don't believe in a general vague evil that permeates in some sort of cosmic battle between good and evil. We believe in a very personal devil, real, and the Bible goes to great lengths to define that for us. Secondly, 
he is going to great lengths in the battlefield to try not to appear to be the enemy. I mean, doesn't that make sense? We'll pretend that we're not really your enemy, but we're actually sabotaging everything that's going on. Uh, That's how he operates. In general, in the culture, Satan operates and does lots of things to try to appear like an unreal myth, kind of a depersonalized myth. Like it's okay to talk about it in, in uh, you know, some horror show or something like that, but everybody knows, well, there's no real devil. It's just kind of like evil, and they're sort of apprehensive about the evil. But it's, you see how it's depersonalized and impersonalized, and, and you r- get rid of any sense that there's an actual personal opponent there with whom we have to do. He wants, above all things, for people to not really take him seriously. Doesn't really matter to him how much people celebrate Halloween. In fact, it helps his purpose the more people that celebrate it because the ones who do it sort of make it fun and they don't even think about any kind of real spiritual battle going on. Uh, He wants to appear unreal, mythological, to the culture. And in the context of the church, stepping outside of the fallen culture, stepping into supposedly the context of the redeemed, among those who are sojourners and exiles, he goes to great lengths to camouflage himself, to present a very different face to people than that sort of caricatured face of horns and a pitchfork and so forth. He, he goes to great lengths to appear differently. Think of how he puts it in, God puts it in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. He works to make himself appear mythological to the unredeemed. To those potentially redeemed, or drifting in that direction anyway, he wants to make himself appear differently. He wants to make his message appear very real, very sincere. He wants his messengers to appear sincere, like religious good guys. And if he does that, then you don't realize you're under attack. It's sort of like in the old days, and I'm dating myself, going back to buddies who had to go through Vietnam. This, you know, nondescript person comes out of the village, and they walk by, and they have a bomb with them. And, uh, of course, those after my time that happened to be in Iraq or other places, uh, Afghanistan, the same things happen. You, you can't, it makes it nondescript. You don't know where the bombs are coming from. Satan wants to be nondescript. He wants to be that way. Here's the point. Don't let anybody who has a sincere religious face, but who speaks ideas that are not biblically sound, blind you to the true source of their ideas. People tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. They say, well, they're sincere, they're nice people, they they mean well. Well, they might be deceived enough to mean well, but that doesn't mean they're not carrying the bomb from the enemy. He camouflages himself in the context of the church. So, generally speaking, a church is not going to successfully deal with the enemy by just developing exorcism techniques, uh, 
where there's some obvious face-to-face confrontational thing. Uh, I'm not saying there's never a time like that, but the enemy's subtleties are not of that sort generally. He's appearing as an angel of light, servants of righteousness. Always ask yourself, where did the message come from? Where did this idea this person is saying come from? Not who's saying it. Because if you think who's saying it, then you look at him and say, well, they seem sincere, they seem nice enough, uh, they're basically good people. And uh, No, no, don't look there. Say, where did it come from? Because it doesn't just come from nowhere. Where did the idea come from? And the biblical message gives you a way of analysis. It helps you to know. Where did it come from? Did it come from God or not? Well, the third thing he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says the third thing to remind ourselves about in this spiritual warfare, this front-line battlefield that we find ourselves in, is that our personal enemy, Satan, prowls around even right this very second here prowls around. This prowls around in the ESV translates peripateo in the Greek, which means literally to walk around. And the context determines what that means. I mean, the word walk around, but in what way does that mean? Here, the context obviously says you walk around like a lion does. Now, how's that? The context gives us the sense of it. Well, you ever been at a zoo during the time when the lion is either agitated or hungry? And you see them pacing around, just kind of going from side to side within. I was a kid when I was very young, didn't live very far when I was living in Erie from the Glenwood Zoo. And back in those rather innocent days, the kids in the neighborhood, we'd all just walk over to the zoo. Nobody thought, oh, well, it's six blocks away. It's like nobody thought anything back in those days. So we spent time in there as kids and just kind of watching the different animals and, uh, uh, and watching the, the lion just pace, just pace back and forth. That's the imagery he's using here. An imagery all of them would have understood. Ceaselessly, restlessly pacing. Pacing around. And he's pacing around, prowling around for one purpose. Victims. Victims. He's not on a sightseeing tour. Like, gee, I'd like to know more about my cage. Or if I'm out in the field, I'd like to know more about this field. No, no. He's prowling around looking for victims. That's what it's about. It's not getting exercise, trying to keep his weight under control. All right. He is prowling for victims. I was thinking of Job chapter 1, verse 7, in this regard. And it says, remember... At the beginning of Job, Satan is coming before God. And listen to this. Then the Lord said to Satan, Oh, from where have you come? And Satan answers the Lord and says, Well, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And uh, Job chapter 2, verse 2, does the same thing. And the Lord said to Satan, This was the second situation. From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Well, from going to and fro on the earth. From walking up and down on it. That's right. That's what I've been doing back in Job and today, walking around. <clears throat> and by the way, 
the very fact that God responded to him by saying, have you considered my servant Job, meant that what he was doing going all over the earth was looking at people. Looking at people. Looking for victims. So, do you hear prowling steps around you? You'd be vastly better off if you did. Vastly better off. Because it'd make you realistic. And God says, you better start listening. Better start heeding. Better start realizing you're in a battlefield. And you better understand there's a real lion here. Of course, we know symbolically of Satan, but there's a real, there's a real uh, enemy prowling around. Satan prowls around. Some of us get the impression that Satan's off somewhere, just kind of resting. Once in a while, he puts together some plans, and then people do things. There's no resting enemy. The Bible, not just here in 1 Peter, but elsewhere, says he is ceaseless in his actions. There's never a moment in history, in his rebellion, that he is not pacing, looking for victims. Never a moment. Do you have that sort of seriousness about the enemy of our souls? makes a lot of sense then to make sure I'm wearing the armor of God. You know? It'd be like, well, you, you keeping an eye out for animals here in, uh, in Erie County? Lions? Uh, probably not. You know, you're not terribly concerned about that. But there'd be places in this world where you better keep your eyes open. I was thinking, uh, it's not a lion, but thinking about that crocodile in that uh, Kambampo River area with the, one of the believers there in, uh, in our churches in Zambia. If you're not looking for, if you're not keeping your eye open all the time for crocodile, you're going to be crocodile meat. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. You, you, you always are alert to that reality. God wants you alert. We're going to talk more about that next time, Lord willing, where he begins it by saying, hey, be alert, sober-minded. <laughs> Recognize the realities. Pay attention. Then he says, listen, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Remind yourself that Satan is a roaring lion, a roaring enemy. He roars with the hunger for the souls of men and women. God says, in a very real spiritual sense, he sounds like the hungry lion wanting the food. You think of being out in the bush and you hear that roaring lion. Or in the, in the zoos, you have been around a roaring lion. It gets your attention, doesn't it? I mean... Uh, it's not the time you want to go in and feed them. You know, it's like, though, they, it makes me sensitive to hear that roaring. He says, Satan roars. And, of course, our comeback to that is saying, well, boy, I wish he did, because it would be a whole lot easier to know he's around. If I could just hear it like a, like a lion, boy, I'd, I'd be alert then, you know. If it was audible, it would be easier, wouldn't it, uh, to hear that roaring? You say, oh, there he is. There he is. But you know, the Bible explains to us his roars become audible when we learn the language. His roars are audible when we understand the roars take the form of lies and attacks on God's truth. Those are the roars. It's been true since Genesis 3, the very beginning of his actions to attack humanity calling into question God's truth with Adam and Eve. 
And it's been true ever since. God says you do have a way to hear the roars. Don't listen for the decibel level of a lion. Listen for the spiritual decibel level of what's being said. For example, he roars every time anybody attacks biblical authority. Calling into question, has God said? That's a roar. And God says, train yourself to hear it as a roar. He roars every time someone attacks biblical morality. Because that in itself is a dismissal of God's truth. He roars when that happens. He roars every time somebody speaks a message, supposedly speaking for God, but is really an attack on sound doctrine. Subtle attack, maybe, but an attack nonetheless. That's a roar. He roars with every message that people share that encourages what is essentially a contentless spirituality. doesn't matter that they were, use the word Jesus or God in the midst of the message, because what they're talking about is all contentless, not biblically defined. Just, they're really encouraging spirituality in the way anybody sort of perceives it. That's Satan's roar. He roars in every book, in every message that tells Christians that it's okay to live lives of spiritual complacency and carnality because, after all, you're saved. God's not the one saying that. God's not the one saying that. Satan roars in every message that in one way or another, in every book that in one way or another says, well, we know that greatest of the commandments. You know, it's sort of like a... It's, it's, it's not really something God expects us to be trying to carry out. It's just, you know, it's one of these things that sets way out there a guidepost that, you know, nobody's ever going to achieve it, but this is sort of where God would like us to sort of tend. Rather than saying, no, it's the greatest of all the commandments. You can't come to God and say, well, I've been working on all the others, I didn't do this one. It's like, duh. I mean, this, this was the greatest one. I, mean, I don't care what you did on the others, this is the one. This, right here. Here's what I've been asking God to do in my life for quite a number of years. Then I encourage you to do it. I've asked God to make me hear roaring in my ears. Anytime any of those messages come from anybody. And he's been doing it. It's the reason my wife has to hold me down sometimes at meetings or at a we'll visit somewhere or even to go to a funeral and somebody's saying stuff that's out the, out the left field. Because uh, I hear a roaring in my ears. It's like, this is from the enemy. This is from the enemy. I want to be alert, don't you? I don't want to be deceived. And I want to see everything. It doesn't matter to me that the person's smiling who's saying it. Remember the angels, messengers of the enemy of our souls, want to appear like servants of righteousness? People come to me and say, well, this person's such a nice person, and, you know, they, they mean well. And I say, well, then many of our souls wants the death of anybody who hears them. I don't want to get sidetracked by some 
uh, subjective analysis of how sincere they are. By the way, the demons are sincere. Sincerity doesn't mean anything in itself. God wants us sincere in our following of him, but it doesn't mean anything. People have been sincere for error all along the way. Don't get trapped in that. I can't tell you how many times, even with ministers, I've had to sit down and we start talking about somebody. And, and the defense is always, well, but, you know, they really meant well. or they, You know, I'm sure God could use a little bit of this. And I'm saying to them, I've become even more aggressive in it, but I've always been aggressive. I'll say, God can't use any of it. Any of it. How can God, the author of truth, ever use lies ultimately rooted in the enemy of our souls. What would possibly motivate God to do that? So let's call a spade a spade. Let's call a spade a spade. I don't care how much people look nice, how sweetly they smile. And I don't even care how many people say, oh, I was so blessed by the thing they said. If Satan is operating and having his servants operate as uh, light producers, agents of righteousness, <laughs> the fact you might be blessed by something only shows your lack of discernment. Your lack of discernment. And by the way, your measure of something isn't whether you felt blessed. It's whether it was biblical. Whether it was biblical. That's the only protection any of us have. So God wants us alert to the roars, not ignore them. Listen, listen, listen. One of the theologians one time said, Live as if there's no bars between you and the lion. You know, when I was in, it meant a lot to me using my, my zoo illustrations as a kid. I was particularly happy, even when we were in the outside part, where it was just bars, not this, you know, plexiglass separation point. I was kind of, I kind of like those bars there. You know, this is, you know, this kind of makes me breathe out a little bit safer. Live as if there's no bars between you and Satan. No bars between you and the roaring lion. And realize all of those soft words of deception are actually life-threatening roars, and don't forget it. This isn't just a civil discussion. This is a frontline battle resulting in casualties. And then he says, listen, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remind yourself what Satan's really after. He wants to devour people. Katapino in the Greek, which means to either drink something, swallow it down entirely, consume something entirely. The Greek scholars say the picture of this word is something where nothing's left but the gnawed bones. You know, you can have an image of that when you see kind of the way some of the predators work. You know, nothing's left but the, but the gnawed bone, that's it. And God says, I want you to hold that in your mind because understand that's what Satan's after. Leaving gnawed bones. That's, all he's, that's what he's after. God says that, not me. His devouring, destructive goal 
I think is underscored in Revelation 9-11 in some of the names that are given to Satan. Listen to these words. And they have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and, and in the Greek he's called Apollyon. Abaddon and Apollyon mean destroyer. Destruction. He says that's, that's the name. Tell yourself about Satan, that he's the destroyer. He is the devourer. That's his goal. Recognize the enemy of our souls. Does, he's interested in destroying, devouring you and other people. He's not interested in simply biting. He's not content with causing somebody to stumble. Goodness gracious, we cause ourselves to stumble. I mean, that's not that I'm demeaning that or saying it's unimportant that we stumble in sin, but we don't need his help to do that. Uh, his goal isn't just that. His goal is to destroy us. Destroy us. He wants to see us neutralized. Of no threat to his goal of keeping people around us lost and going to hell. I mean, that's what his goal is. That's what he's after. His goal is the murder of the souls of men and women. And every roar that you hear from him, you should understand, driven, it's driven by that goal. The destruction and the murder, spiritually speaking, of men and women. That's why the Lord Jesus describes Satan as a murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and the father of lies. Why does God say he's a murderer from the beginning? Because he is. He's been seeking to murder people since the garden. You know, we have penalties in place for civil penalties, criminal penalties for murder. What about the murder of a soul? What about eternal separation from God? That's a much bigger issue. And we have one who's a murderer according to that criteria. And that is the enemy of our souls, Satan. He is the murderer, the devourer. Every unbeliever who rejects the gospel is successfully murdered. Murdered. Let's talk in those serious terms. These people we prayed for this morning, in the silence of our heart, if they don't know Christ, they're being murdered. And if they die, they go into eternity murdered. Separated from God. Exactly what Satan wants to have happen. Pretty serious. Pretty serious. And by the way, Every believer who falls prey of the deception of thinking that God is okay with something less than living as a surrendered disciple has also been successfully neutralized. He can't murder you because you've been redeemed, but he can neutralize you. And if you've been neutralized, you are of no value to the murder of the people you love. Let me repeat it. You are of no value to that person even you're praying for that they would be saved because you are an obstacle to that salvation if you are not living surrendered, allowing your life to be redeeming and giving light and glory to himself. 
You are of no value. And Satan says, well, it was too late to save the, to, to murder this one. Sadly, uh, they're under a new covenant. So what I'll do is I'll neutralize them so there'll be other people I can murder. That God's great intention wouldn't be murdered as easily because they would have been witnessing, they would have been living in a way that gave glory to God that would have demonstrated there's another answer in the midst of this fallen world. Murder and neutralization. That's what the enemy is about. Put in the name of those people you love. And say, Lord, do I stand guilty of assisting in their murder because I've been neutralized by my own choice to not live surrendered to you? Gotta ask God that. Show you mean business about that stuff. Say, oh, Lord, I know there's been times when that's been true. I don't want to continue to be true. I want want to be as useful. I want to be a pain in the neck to the enemy. Well, what's the point of all of this? God says, wake up, we face a dangerous foe. (laughs) We face warfare. Don't get complacent about it. Don't assume the issues don't matter. And be realistic. The enemy is very happy to stop to devour the believer if it results not in murder, but in neutralization. So he's not holding his energies only for the unredeemed. So let's understand that. Say, okay, then I need your strength, Lord. I need your grace. I was thinking of Jesus talking to Peter in Luke 22. Verses 31 32, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That your faith may not fail, and that you, when you've turned again, you'll strengthen your brothers. Well, Lord, I would prefer you have said, if you prayed for me, tell Satan, no, you're not allowed to do that. That's not what it says, is it? And don't make the mistake of thinking you can avoid these outcomes in your own strength. Well, final word. This passage not only warns us, but it moves on to give us some insight into how to defeat the enemy. Isn't that wonderful? It's not just it's it's not only telling us what to be concerned about, but what to solve it with. And it goes and it tells us some of the things that are the strategy for handling the prowling lion. But I don't think we pay enough attention to the strategy if we're not convinced of the prowl. You know, it's, it's only to the degree that I really think, in these terms, that I then come to the Lord and saying, help me. Where, where's the answer? What do you want me to do? And if we go to the Lord that way, there's hope, brothers and sisters. There's hope. And this passage is not just a warning, but it's a hope. And it gives us directions. Uh, Lord willing, we'll look around at that strategy next week. But, uh, do you hear the roars? Almost like the Lord's answered it too much for me because I can't even hear things that sort of sound that way without hearing roar in the background, you know. It's, it's become uncomfortable. Why? Because there's more of that around than there is truth. 
which is a sad commentary on a culture that had its roots in truth, but it's not necessarily a dominant dimension of the culture any longer, including the Judeo-Christian culture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your love for us, for your warnings to us. To, you care enough about us to let us see the real things, the real picture. And, oh Lord, would you work within us that we might take what you say seriously, act on it, and rest in you in the midst of it. And we'll give you thanks for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.